All right, if you would, I'd like to invite you to open your Bible, or if you didn't bring a Bible, just grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you. We're going to open it to that passage that Jenny just read. It's Galatians chapter 5, which chapters are the big numbers, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 15, which are, of course, the smaller numbers. If you are new to the Bible, let me just encourage you to take your time getting to the book of Galatians. It's toward the right side of the Bible in the New Testament, right before Ephesians and Colossians. But here's the thing, the fastest way to find it is to go to the table of contents, look it up, and you will be able to find the page number there. So I encourage you to to turn with me. We're going to look at that here in just a moment. Now this last week, I was um, driving home from work, just listening to the radio, and, and I heard something on the radio that really took me back. I was sitting there, it was November 5th, it was Monday of this week, and, and on November 5th, they thought it was okay to be playing Christmas music. Now, how many of you are believers that all Christmas music, decorating festivities, that it should all have to wait until after Thanksgiving? Many of you in the room, the rest of you, you're already jamming to Mariah Carey Christmas, aren't you? That's what's going on. Now, I will just say this. I'm not a hardliner on this deal. Like, I don't mind a little early Christmas cheer. Rachel and I will decorate probably a little bit before Thanksgiving. So I'm not a hardliner. But what really took me back was that the first Christmas song that played on the radio for this Christmas season was that 1980s hit, Last Christmas. Now, if you listen to Christmas music at all, you've heard this song. It's very uh, non-Christmassy. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, and the very next day, you gave it away. This year, to save me from tears, I'll give it to someone special. How Christmassy is that? Not at all. But it doesn't matter how much you like it or not, radio stations are going to pound that song into our brains over and over and over again until whether we like it or not, it's part of us. I'm just going to be vulnerable here. As that song was playing, I found myself singing with a little head bob. I don't even like the song. It's in me, right? But that's what happens, right? The more you hear something, the more it is pounded in, the more it's driven in, it becomes part of who you are. Well, whether you realize it or not, that is Paul, who is writing this whole letter to the Galatians, these Christians in Galatia. That is his goal in the book of Galatians. He is going to drive it home over and over again. It is like a song on repeat. He wants to drive home until it gets deep within us, the gospel message. If you're new this morning, you may not know what I mean by gospel. What are we talking about the gospel? Is that a genre of music? No. The word gospel simply means this, good news. Uh, Christianity at its core is a message of the good news of what God has done for us through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, the good news. Now, when you think about that phrase, good news, I think we can all agree by looking at the world around us that this world is in desperate need of good news. The world around us, friends, it's broken. It's broken. The evidence of that is all over the news this last week, whether it's the fires that are raging, natural disasters, or whether it's very human disasters, the killing of innocent lives down in Southern California. It's all around us. This world is broken. The problem, though, is that if we look at our own lives, we're no less broken. Fear, anxiety, depression, pride, anger, sickness, and the trump card of them all, death itself reveals that this whole world, our entire experience, is not how God designed it to be. It is broken. And the reason for that, the Scriptures tells us, is sin. 
from the least to the greatest of each one of us, we have all fallen short of God's standard. We've all looked at God's commands and we've not lived up to them. Uh, We've looked at God as the authority of our lives and said, you know what, God, I can do this on my own. I don't really need you. I'm going to be king of my own life. And that, in all of its venues, that is called sin. What the Bible tells us is that this sin separates us from the true God. Romans says this, for the wages of sin is death. What that means is what we earn because of our sin, because of our going against God's commandments, is death, but not just physical death. It's talking about separation from the God who created us. That's not great news. We are separated from him. And that's why Paul, in the whole book of Galatians, he, he, he summarizes our whole condition apart from Christ as slavery. We're enslaved to our sin. We cannot free ourselves from our sin. We cannot put together the broken pieces of our lives. We can't fix our broken world on our own. We need a Savior. But that's where this good news comes in. And it's this good news that we see once again driven in by Paul in this passage today. Verse 1, I want you to look at it with me. There are certain verses in Scripture that if you can really get it, okay, if you can allow the Holy Spirit to drive it into your soul, it will change everything about your life. And verse 1 is one of those verses. I would encourage you to memorize it if you've not done so already. It says this, For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. I love John Stott's summary of this verse when he says this. He says, our former state is portrayed as slavery. Jesus Christ as our liberator. Conversion as an act of emancipation in the Christian life as a life of freedom. I love that. Our salvation is an action of emancipation, which means this, friends. It means that when Christ came into our lives, when we received what he's done through faith, that we are emancipated from something. We are freed from something. And that's what I want us to begin to look at as we go into this text this morning. What are we free from? As Christians who have come into a relationship with Jesus, what are we free from? What has he freed us from? Well, we've seen many things in the book of Galatians, and I'm just going to summarize them very quickly. Number one, through Jesus, we are free from guilt and shame. We're free of guilt and shame. Paul has already spent a lot of time talking about this one. Because of our sin, apart from Christ, our standing before God is not free. It's guilty. Each one of us, it doesn't matter how good or bad we think we are, our standing before God is not innocent. We have gone against his commands, so therefore we are not righteous. We don't have a right standing with God. But the good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus is the complete opposite of us. Jesus came and he dwelt among us, but he did so without sin. It said that he he endured all the temptations that we face, and yet he was without sin. He was perfect in every way. But not only was he perfect, Jesus came and he died on the cross for us. We've gone over this over and over again in the book of Galatians. He did it for us. Jesus went to the cross to take the punishment for sin that we deserve. He took upon himself the wrath of God that that we deserve because of our sin. That's what our sins demanded, but he took it for us. But in this incredible exchange of him taking upon himself our sin, what does he also do? He gives to us 
his perfect righteousness. He gives to us his perfect standing before God, his sinless perfection. It says that God credits to our account Jesus' righteousness, which means this. It means that if you are a Christian this morning, if you have given your life to Christ, God, when he looks at you today, he does not see your sin. Instead, he sees his perfect son. This is an incredible picture. And this whole exchange of what happens through Jesus' death and resurrection, it frees us from condemnation. That's why Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, there's an old hymn that I think summarizes this whole thought perfectly. It's a song that we are going to sing later today, and it's called At Calvary. And I want you just to hear the verse of this hymn. It says this, Mercy there was great, and grace was free. When it talks about there, it's talking about at Calvary, at the cross. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. We were pardoned for our sins. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Friends, we, if we are in Christ, are free from guilt and shame forever. We do not carry with us guilt. There is no condemnation. If we are in Christ, we have been freed from guilt and shame. But that's not all. We've also learned in the book of Galatians that we are also free from vain pursuits. I wonder this morning, how many of you have striven for something and yet it always seems to be just out of reach? That's how I feel every time I eat ramen. I literally, I have the bowl of ramen and I eat and I eat. I keep thinking the end's going to come, but it's always more, right? It just continually grows in a bowl. It's amazing. Well, the picture here in the book of Galatians has been that's each one of us apart from Christ in our own searching for significance. A massive question that people have in our culture is this. What is my purpose? It doesn't matter if that person has a lot, if they're at the top as CEO of a great company, or if they have nothing. We're all asking that question. What is my purpose? And so what do we do? We try to answer that through our work. We try to find our purpose in life by working and doing lots of things and pouring it into our careers. That's why it was an interesting thing this last week. I saw a statistic of the number of people that die in, within about a year or two years of retirement. It's, it's crazy. Why? Because their whole purpose, their identity was wrapped up in their work. When they lost their work, they no longer had their purpose. Some people look for purpose in relationships. Some people look to it in their family life. Some people look to it in going on great adventures. Some people look to it on by uh, garnishing lots of achievements. It doesn't matter. We all look for purpose. But here's what the Bible will tell you. That no matter how long you pursue those things, looking for significance and purpose, it will never satisfy your heart. Why? Because it is not God. I would encourage you, if, if you're here and you say, Ryan, I don't know if I believe this, I'd encourage you to take some time to read the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. And the book of Ecclesiastes is really a documentary of, of a man named Solomon. Solomon was the wealthiest, most powerful figure of his entire generation and and this book is a a picture of his quest for significance he goes out and he looks for significance by gaining as much wealth as he can as he can hold it doesn't satisfy so he goes on and he looks for it for pleasure lots and lots of women it doesn't it doesn't hold it doesn't satisfy so he goes and he looks for it for wisdom and knowledge and a great education it doesn't satisfy 
He goes and he looks to it for moralism through lots of religious activity, and it does not satisfy. At the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, it says this, Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. I can't help but believe this morning that there are many of you in this room who are striving after the wind. You're looking for your purpose and significance and your identity and your joy in things that cannot satisfy your heart. But Jesus can bring exactly what you're looking for. You see, in Jesus, there is the thing that we need, that we are created for more than anything else, and that is a relationship with the living God. A relationship, not religion. A relationship with the living God where we find our identity and our purpose in Him and being found as part of His kingdom and His work here on the earth. That is what gives purpose. We are free from our vain pursuits because we found what we're looking for in Jesus Christ. That's not all. The last thing, like I said, it's not religion. And so what does the gospel free us from? What does Jesus free us from? It frees us from performance and fear-based religion. And this one, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you're like, Ryan, we got this one by now, right? And yet it's still important. He continually hits on it, and he hits on it in this passage. There are multiple people all around the world seeking to have a relationship with God through their works. They think, if I can just do enough good things, I will appease God. If I can just do this checklist that, that they give in Islam, or the checklist that they give in Buddhism, or the checklist they give in Hinduism, if I can just do these things, then I can have salvation. Then I can find God's approval. They fill in the boxes. How much do I have to do? The problem with all of these religions, the f- problem with that whole focus, is that it's based on fear. It's based on this thought, if I don't do this, God is going to get me. He's going to zap me. He's not going to bring me into his kingdom. And so we live in fear. Well, it's not a coincidence that when we fear God, if that's our only picture of God, we have this constant being scared of God that we're always going to be working to try to get on his good side. And that's what people do. That's all the different religions of the world. If I can just get on God's good side, then I will be good. Paul has to speak against this over and over again. The Christians in Galatia had begun to believe this lie, that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was not enough for my salvation. That they in some way needed to add something to the work that Jesus had done. And friends, that's never going to cut it. He talks a lot about circumcision here. And if you're here and you're new to Christianity, you're new to the Bible, you might be thinking, that is just weird. Why is he talking about circumcision? What does that have to do with anything? Well, you have to understand that when he's talking about circumcision, that in those times was a very important thing in Judaism. It was the sign that you were in a covenant relationship with God, that you were part of the family of God. And so these these false teachers that had come into Galatia, they were trying to convince the Galatian believers, yes, you need Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised if you're going to be part of the family of God. That's the one thing you have to do. Yes, God does his thing, but you have to add to his work. And so Paul comes against that in this text. I want you to listen to what he says in verse 2. He says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. 
You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. What he's saying here is that if you are trying to be um, justified before God, if you are trying to be made right before God, approved by God, loved by God through any external thing, that's what circumcision is, it's an external thing. If you are trying to do that, you make the work of Jesus on the cross utterly useless. You've cast away his grace. You've not received his grace because you're trying to earn it yourself. And here, by the way, if you're going to try to do that, you have to live up to the whole law. That's what Paul is saying in this text. That's why the Puritan William Perkins said this. There's no middle ground. He says, Jesus must be a perfect Savior or no Savior at all. It can't be a lot of Jesus and a little bit of you. Either he is the perfect Savior or he is no Savior at all. Paul takes this further in verses 8 through 12. He says, This persuasion, this teaching, is not from him who calls you. In other words, it's not from God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And then there's verse 12. I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, I might have said some bold things from this pulpit, but I've never said anything like that, okay? Paul is, is, is really, really serious here. He says, for those that would teach that you need to add circumcision and add on all these Jewish customs, I wish they'd just go all the way, emasculate themselves. He's very serious. Why is Paul so emphatic about this issue? Because if we try to add to the work of Jesus, we totally undercut its value in our lives. It's a totally different gospel. That is not good news. If we are reliant on our own good works to gain God's approval, it is not good news. It is an anti-gospel. Think about it this way. Uh, Not long ago, there was a a man who had an old baseball that had been autographed by Babe Ruth. Uh, Babe Ruth, for those of you that are not baseball fans, one of the greatest baseball players ever to play the game. As he was getting ready to to sell it, he he knew it was valuable. He was going to take it to an auction. He got worried because this autograph, over time, had faded. It was kind of a a remnant of what it used to be. And so here was his great idea. I'm going to take out a a pen, and I'm going to go over the autograph. B-A-B-R-U-T-H, Babe Ruth. Well, what happened? In that action, he had taken something that was absolutely priceless, and he had made it something worthless. Paul is saying that's exactly what happens. The work of Jesus Christ cannot be added to. It can't be refined. It can't be refinished. The moment you try to add to the work of Jesus, it makes it completely worthless to you. Either Jesus is the perfect Savior or he is no Savior at all. Friend, if you are trying to always please God, if you think it's on you, let me just say this, you will never experience freedom. It's impossible to experience freedom if you are constantly worried, have I done enough for God? There are always going to be more boxes to check off. You will never experience freedom in your Christian life. You will only experience freedom when you know that your guilt and shame has been taken care of. When you know that his relationship is the only relationship you need. When you know you're in a relationship and that's not religion. Jesus has freed us from these things. This morning, if you're in this room and you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you've trusted in his work on the cross, let me just say, 
all of these things are 100% true of you. As you are right here today, all of these things are true. You are free from sin and guilt and shame. You are free from vain pursuits. You are free from performance-based religion. You are free. Your salvation was an act of emancipation. What an incredible reality this morning. For those of you that have never experienced that freedom, let me just say this. It is available to you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. You are not outside the reach of God's hand. He loves you. He longs for you to trust in him rather relying on yourself. This morning, would you give your life to him? But here, friends, is where the book of Galatians turns. I've told you he's been pounding in this message of the gospel that it is freely a gift of God's grace, his undeserved favor for you, that you cannot buy it, you cannot earn it. It's a gift that must be received through faith. He has pounded that message in. But here's the thing. The rest of the book of Galatians is this. Not only are we free from something, but we are free to something. He turns it. What he's going to say in the rest of the book of Galatians is this. Not only has Jesus' death on the cross freed you from something, but it also has very present implications for how you live your life today. We need to live in light of the freedom that we've experienced. And that's why in verse 1, what does it say? For freedom, Christ has set you free. Why did Jesus set you free? For freedom. That you would experience freedom in the way that you live. What are we free to? It's an amazing picture. When we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and he empowers us to live out this freedom. And we begin to see this in verse 5. It says, For through the Spirit, by faith, again, it's a gift of God, it's received by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Christian, if you're here, you've been freed from those things, but here's the thing, you've also been free to hope. You've been giving a freedom to hope. That biblical word that is translated hope does not carry the same meaning that, that we do when we talk about hopes. When we say hope, here, what do we mean? We mean it may happen, it may not, I hope so. That's not what the biblical term hope means. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So hope in the scripture is a, an assurance, it's a certainty of something. And what Paul does here is he, he points us and he says, you as Christians are, are free to eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Now what is he talking about here? Paul is pointing each one of us in this room to that future day when we will stand before God, that day that's called the day of judgment, the day where we will stand before God and give an account of our life. He says, you as Christians are free to hope for that day where Christ and his righteousness will be applied to you in the greatest way possible. You will, for once and for all, experience that, that verdict from God, approved, loved, accepted. He says, you are free to hope for that day. I love that. Paul is saying, I cannot wait for the day of judgment. Now, how many of you in this room do you, do you have hope as you think about that day when you will meet God face to face? I will tell you this, if you are relying on your own performance to in some way earn God's salvation, to earn his favor, that will never be a day that you hope for. You will always be filled with fear. Why? Because there's always more to do. There's always more scrubbing off of sin you have to do. There's always more checks and boxes to fill out. 
if you're going to be approved by God, it will never be a day that you look forward to. Or maybe this morning you're here and you, you don't have any kind of relationship with God. You've said, I don't really need God. I'm going to live as I want to live. Friend, that is not going to be a day that you hope for. In fact, this morning you will probably just convince yourself or try to convince yourself that that day will never come. But for Christians, we have this incredible gift that comes with the gospel. We have hope for that future day. Now, does that mean that our circumstances here in the present are automatically going to become better? No, of course not. We live in a world that is tainted by sin, and all around us there's uh, brokenness. All those things are reality, and that's why Paul, he talks about the Christian life as a race. And he's not talking about a sprint, he's talking about a marathon. Marathons are hard. But here's the difference for the Christian. He says, no matter what mile you're on, whether it's mile two or mile six or mile 13, or for some of us, mile 26, no matter what mile you're on for the Christian, you have the hope because why? You know the finish line is coming. And you know that as you cross that finish line, the verdict before God, you're standing before God will be this. You are my son. You are my daughter with whom I am well pleased. You are accepted. You are approved. This changes our ability to run in this life. I saw that firsthand with one of our members who went to be with the Lord this last Friday morning. Many of you know her. She had been one of the longest members of our church. Her name is Miriam Peterson. Miriam ran a a very long race, 93 years. Incredible. 70 of those years serving as part of this church family, ministering to the city of San Francisco. Her race had many, many joys. I mean, my goodness, she had all sorts of joys in her life, and yet her race was also marked by struggles and pain. But I will tell you this, as I spent these last weeks with Miriam, as many around her spent their last days with Miriam, I will tell you this, Miriam did not fear crossing the finish line. She did not fear standing before God. But instead, Miriam looked forward to that day. She had what the Bible calls hope. She knew that as she crossed the finish line and her feeble body gave way, that she would stand before God and he would say, well done, Miriam, my good and faithful servant. And because of that, she hoped for that day. Christian, you are free to hope. If you're in this room this morning and you fear death, let me just urge you in this very sacred moment this morning, would you stop trying to live to be good enough for God, but instead rely on what Jesus has done for you? He's offered you forgiveness. He's offered you salvation. But if you keep trying to earn it, you can't receive it. This morning, would you trust in Jesus' righteousness? Say to Jesus, yes, I believe you have died on the cross for my sin. Yes, I believe you have resurrected from the dead. Would you please give me hope? Give me your righteousness so that I have right standing before God, so that I can look forward to that day. We're free to hope. Second, in Christ, we are free to obey. It's an odd concept, isn't it? We are free to obey God's commands. It's a very different concept of freedom than we usually have here in America. In America, we love our freedoms. We love our freedom to vote. We love our our freedom of speech. We love freedom of religion. But I would submit to you this morning that the freedom that most of us hold on to most tightly is personal freedom. It's our autonomy. That's why a recent sociologist said it this way. He said, perhaps, uh, perhaps the most resonant, deeply held American value is freedom. And yet freedom turns out to mean being left alone by others. 
Not having other people's values, ideas, or styles of life forced upon one. Being free of arbitrary authority in work, family, and political life. In other words, we want a freedom to do whatever we want to do. We want a freedom from all authority other than our own authority. Friends, that is not the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about in this text. When he talks about this kind of freedom, he's talking about a freedom to live responsibly before God and before others. That's what he gets into here. He talks about obedience. Uh, He knows that there is the very dangerous idea behind grace that says we can go out and choose to live however we want. Yes, I will be a follower of Christ, but I'm going to follow him on my terms. Uh, When I see things in the Bible that I don't like, I'll just say these don't apply to me, that I get to pick and choose God's commands. And they all of a sudden lead us into sin. But Paul says that's not the case. Verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Again, flesh is that part of each one of us that says, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's our sinful nature. He says, do not use the freedom that you have in Christ to say, now I can do whatever I want to do. That is to abuse freedom instead of to use it. No, the gospel gives us freedom to obey. We're no longer scared of God. All of a sudden we can see that his commands are for us. They're for our good. We look to God's commands and we look to them not as as boundaries that we have to live up to, but instead as, as our guide. We look to his law as his his goodwill expressed for us that he's always looking out for our good. And all of a sudden we can delight in his law. We can delight in his commands. That's why I've always found John 15 interesting. Jesus says to abide in his love. He says, if you will abide in my love, you need to keep my commandments. So he, he connects loving him with keeping his commandments. But then he says this, and I've always found this interesting. He says, these things I have told you so that my joy may be in you, and so that your joy may be full. What's he saying there? He's saying the more that you love me, the more you're going to obey my commands, and the result of all this is that you will experience that joy that you long for. My commands are for your joy. Christian, we are free to obey because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Last but not least, and we're going to end with this, he frees us to love. This is where it gets interesting. Verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This entire time, Paul has been trying to get us to understand this truth. We are not slaves, right? Over and over again, he says, you are not slaves, you are free. You are not slaves, you are free. But what does he say in verse 13? That word, serve one another, that word in the New Testament, in the Greek, is slave. So he says, Christian, you are free, don't be a slave. So go, therefore, and be a slave to one another. Anybody else, when you read that, like, what are you talking about, Paul? What do you mean? You say I'm free, but now you're saying I need to be a slave to others. What is, this, what is this even talking about? Well, here's what he's getting at. When you are truly living in the reality of God's love for you, when you are fully embracing this identity that you are loved by God, that you are approved by him, that you are accepted by him, that, you have, that he sacrificed his life so that you could experience that freedom, when you are doing that, what does it do? It changes the way that you interact with others. 
When that same Jesus who, who came to, to serve and to sacrifice his life for us, when that same Jesus takes residence in our lives, we cannot help to delight in serving and loving the people around us. The more he owns our life, the more that's the way that it's going to be exhibited. It's going to be exhibited through love in the way of service. It's an amazing picture. The Christian life frees us to love one another. No longer do we, think about this, if you are looking for approval from other people, if you're, if you're looking for something in your relationship with other people for you, can you love them? No, it's going to be about you. But if you are at that place where you know of God's love for us, when that's your identity, you cannot help but pour that out into other people. And we're going to talk more about what that looks like practically next week. What does it look to live this life of love and sacrificial service to one another? We need to wrap things up here. The question I have for you is this. It's very simple this morning. Are you free? Are you free? Each one of you in this room, I'm asking each one of you, are you free? Are you free this morning from guilt and shame? Are you free from vain pursuits in life for significance and purpose? Are you free from performance-based religion? Are you free? Today, the good news, if you are not, is that Jesus has done everything through his death and resurrection to make that freedom available to you. All you have to do is receive it through faith turning from your old way and trusting in Jesus Christ, giving him your life, says that through him you can be made righteous this morning. You can have right standing before God. You can become free. If you've received that freedom, then here's the question. If you're a Christian in this room, are you living out your freedom in your daily life? Are you living out your freedom to hope, your freedom to obey his commands, your freedom to love one another? Or have you gone back to some kind of slavery? Here's the thing. If we are truly centered in that reality that we are approved before God, it's going to flow out in obedience. It's going to flow out in love. It's going to flow out in hope. But where we are lacking in those areas, I would submit to you this, that you've gone back to slavery. Either you've gone back to, to trying to earn God's approval, or you've taken God's freedom and you've used it, you've abused it through doing your own thing. You've potentially forgotten the hope you have in Christ and now you're living for yourself instead of serving others in love. The question for each one of us is this. Are we living in the reality that we have been freed for freedom? I pray that we would be a church who is free and freely hopes, freely loves, freely obeys this week.